0: If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible or your personal Bible, that's a wonderful thing. If you have trouble getting around with that and staying with us, I'm going to try pretty much everything that you're going to see up here is just going to be the scriptures. I found that's convenient on everybody staying together and to make sure that you get a read and know this is what it says. And one of the greatest blessings God has given to us is that the word of God is free to everybody. You may say, well, I don't know, it costs about 35 bucks in the bookstore where I looked. But you can get one free. The Bible, God's Word, is literally to everybody of all times. The languages that it's in, there's no excuse for us not to understand and be able to go to God's Word. And sometimes when I talk with, with folks, they talk about, well, it's just so confusing to me. And I want you to know, there may be things that it's difficult for us to tie together. But this story also gives us insight into how to to navigate the confusion that we might feel when we read. I'll draw your attention to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to begin in verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, I'll stop to say this. As he comes down and he, as he's going along, there's a man of Ethiopia. This man, there's a, this calls it a eunuch here. Some translations call it, and I'm blinking right now, so I'm going to keep going. He has treasury of all, he has charge of all her treasury. Uh, There's one of our preachers who calls him the secretary of treasury, converting the secretary of treasury. This person is someone who is no doubt has an education level that is beyond what would be standard. He's someone who certainly has a place in the government who's far above whatever would be normal for others. He's come to Jerusalem to worship. Is this man a proselyte? Is he a man who was a Jew that somehow relocated into Ethiopia? I can tell you in my mind, Zion, and what I personally think, this is an Ethiopian man. A man who at some point was proselytized into the Jewish religion, and now he's going to Jerusalem like the Jews would do. He's trying to learn about this new faith that he's found in the one God of the universe. Because prior to that, no doubt he had been exposed to either some type of an idolatrous uh, concept or worldview that would have had one or many. And now he's learned about the one. We don't know how long he's been this. And we don't know for sure that he was a proselyte. I just think that about him myself. But he's gone to Jerusalem to worship. And now as he goes back, the Bible says he's returning. Now, by the way, if I understand right, as the crow flies, just, does, just straight, if you're taking an airplane, this might have been thirteen to 1,500 miles. If he was going by chariot and taking it all by land without the aid of a ship. I'm not going to try to do This could have been a journey that took months. We don't know how long exactly he's been reading. But he's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Now you can look in your Bible and you can read the book of Isaiah just like he was doing. And the Bible says... The Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. I want you to get up to him. And so he goes near to overtake it. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Now I don't know if Philip was just super fast, if this was a miracle of the Holy Spirit that he could out sprint a chariot, or if it's just such a long chariot trip that this chariot is crawling. It's just better than walking yourself. Some have even suggested this night might not have even been horses that were pulling this chariot, that it was not uncommon that it would have been some type of of ox or something like that, which might give an image of how slowly this could have been moving. It might not have taken a big, hard run. We don't know exactly, but we know as he runs and comes near, he hears him reading the prophet. That means he's reading out loud. Do you ever get to where you're having trouble understanding something and you've been reading it and you're back and forth over it, you're in the Bible and you're reading it and it's your mind, maybe it's going other places, you're distracted, you got all this and you think, I don't have a clue what I just read and so you read it again and now you try to pay attention but it's harder to understand than it was the first time? If you're like me, when you're really confused reading something, pretty soon you'll be reading it out loud. Not that it's really helping anything other than it's, it's, I do it. And some of you are shaking your head. You do that too. I don't know if this is what's going on with this Ethiopian nobleman. Or if he's just reading it so the other people in his entourage gets to hear it too. But Philip hears him reading it. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, we've already been introduced to this man. He's someone who's on the level of our Secretary of Treasury, most undoubtedly a man of high education, a man of great authority. We would typically see this person in society and say, well, they're intelligent. We look at this guy and we say he should be an intelligent person who's capable of understanding things, and yet he's reading Isaiah and he doesn't get it. The reason I'm belaboring this point is because I want you to understand when you don't get the Bible, it doesn't mean you're not intelligent enough to get it. It doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity. It just means that you need someone to help you connect the dots. Someone that perhaps has already spent that time, been there. They've been through that confusion and had someone help them understand it. And I want you to understand what Philip did. He came and he asked and Philip came and sat with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before a shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This was the place the nobleman read. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Now, if you're familiar with this, this is in Isaiah chapter 53. And my intake on this is that he's already read 52 chapters. And he still hasn't figured out who is being talked about. Is this Isaiah? Is it somebody else Who is he talking about? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Told you it's Isaiah 53, it's verses 7 and 8. What I want you to do now is go back and look at what he might have read. We can't go back to Isaiah chapter 1. But I think we've got time this morning to start in Isaiah chapter 52. And we're going to pick up in verse 13. I want to get a running start into Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. What had he been reading up to this point? that now he's convinced that what he's saying is either about himself or he's talking about somebody else. If he's he's talking about somebody else, I want to understand it. I want to get it. Now put yourself in the place of this this perhaps a proselyte. If it wasn't a proselyte and he he was a Jewish born and raised, but he'd just been relocated to Ethiopia and somehow been managed to, to elevate himself within that society, not only to a place of stature and within the government to be the treasury somebody says well you know maybe he wasn't maybe he wasn't that much of a deal maybe he just nobody else wanted to count the money you know the fact is the very fact that he owns a scroll in, of isaiah that he's taking it with him implies many scholars to say he was very wealthy You see, I told you we're we're very fortunate today that pretty much I'm guessing everybody in this audience has a Bible. And I've already told you if you don't and you want one and you can't afford it, you'll have one for free this day. It wasn't like that back then. If you wanted a copy of the old scriptures, somebody had to be paid to write it out. That's a scribe. When you read about the scribes in the the Bible, those are people that their job, their daily activity, was writing and copying the scriptures so there could be more copies of it to spread around. Because it was such a tedious, long thing, it was expensive. And yet, this man's rich enough to own one. He's been reading it. We're going to pick up in Isaiah 53. What's he saying? Behold, my servant shall do prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Whoever he's reading about at this time, he says he's going to deal prudently and he's going to be extolled. He's going to be brought very high. And yet, though many are astonished at you, his visage is going to be marred more than anybody's has ever been marred. Do you know what the visage is? It's the appearance. It's his form. When you look at him, he's going to be more more than any of the sons of man. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. They're going to be quiet and they'll listen. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. There's a new message coming through this one. That even kings will stop to listen to. We're dealing with an age and a time when the king spoke, everybody else was quiet. You didn't dare speak and open your mouth until you were bitten by the king. But this man's different. The one he's talking about here is when he talks, the kings will be quiet. He's different. And they're going to hear something that they've never considered. They will consider it now. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. And who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This message, who's, who's believed it? Now you would think that that could have been written in the year 2018, right today, because there's a lot of people in this, in this state, in this world, and perhaps in this room. There may be one or two, or maybe more, who have trouble believing this report. That's not a new problem. People believing and being able to embrace the Word of God is nothing new. It's been a challenge. You read the book of Jeremiah. You know, some people say Darwin was the first evolutionist. He's not. Read the book of Jeremiah. And you'll find in the book of Jeremiah that when people were confronted with their sin, that on that occasion, the Bible says they covered their faces, they turned to their back to Him, and they wouldn't listen You know what they said? They said to the trees, you have brought us forth, and to the rocks, we came from you. They denied being the product of a creative God and said, we have just evolved from trees and rocks. Darwin Darwin was late to that party. He just published more about it. Back in Isaiah 53, people weren't believing this. In many cases. And he says, who will the arm of the Lord even be revealed to? This one he speaks of here is now being referred to as the arm of the Lord. What does your arm do? Reach out. Your arm reaches out. Your arm is there so that when I want something, my my arm puts my hand out there to take it. This one that he's talking about here. He's God's ability to reach out to man. The arm of the Lord. He says, who will he be revealed to? For he has grown up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This one he's talking about, he says, he's before God, before the Lord. He's grown up like a tender plant. I love to garden. Well, I don't know if I love to garden as much as I love the produce that comes out of the garden. Because when you see those tender plants, I see tomatoes, I see cucumbers, I see the the potential there and I can't wait for it. But really, when it's just a little plant, it's not that great, I guess. It must not be just little plants in and of themselves aren't great because when they grow up in the grass, I pull them out. As a matter of fact, this, this, this idea as a root out of dry ground I got these fruitless mulberry trees I put in my backyard because they grow fast and I needed shade and I didn't have a a tree on two acres. And so I thought fruitless mulberries would be great. And they were great for the first eight years. And now you know what's going on with roots. They got big roots and they want to come up. And so what do I do? I get dirt and I try to cover them up and plant grass so it comes over. I've kind of given up. See, I don't like that root appearing out of dry ground. And I feel bad when I think of it in this light because that's how people looked at the one that's being prophesied about. They just wanted to cover him up. They didn't want him. Who's going to accept this? He's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now, specifically, contextually, he's talking about the Jews, the person who, who, whose lineage and whose bloodline they shared. He says even his own family didn't accept him for this. Is it any wonder that 2,000 years later, people are still struggling with it? Who's going to believe this report? Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This Ethiopian nobleman's reading about this guy and he's saying, Man, I mean this it seems like God loves him, but everybody else hates him. And people, they look at him and thought that God was afflicting him and striking him. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. How is this working? How does all this happen? All we, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No wonder this Ethiopian nobleman is getting confused. And he wants to know, who is this that was oppressed and he was afflicted? Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before a shearers of So he opened not his mouth. You can picture this, this scene. Of this lamb that before they slaughter it, they want to be sure to get what was of any value off of it. And so it would be shorn. And it just stands there without a bleat, Ready to receive whatever happens. He says, this is what's going on. It's like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Now, I know you've heard Frank teach on this. This idea that he goes through, he says he's taken, he doesn't even get his prison sentence. He doesn't even get what I think we would call in his, his ability to um, appeal the condemnation. He is, is, from the time that they tell him he's going to die, he gets no justice. And who's going to talk about his kids? Who's going to talk about the generation that he left behind that will follow? Nobody. For he was cut off from the land of the living. We had to bury a young man of our congregation at the end of December. December. 19 years old, perfectly healthy, and two months later, he's, he's gone. No generation declare for him. It's a hard thing to deal with. God knows. Jesus knows. The things that we take great joy in as humans in our generations, in our children, and grandchildren, he didn't get to know that either he was cut off from the land of the living and why for the transgression of my people he was stricken not anything he did and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth he was killed he was destroyed along with wicked men But at his death, he would go to the place of the rich. Now, I'm guessing that many of you already know where this is headed. You already know how this story, and I kind of gave it off away in the title, we're preaching Jesus. And you know that this prophecy is fulfilled to a T. You know that Pilate marveled that he would answer not a word when he could have. He had showed himself very capable in the synagogue on many occasions with the Pharisees or with the Sadducees or with the scribes. He could could stand before them all and they could not confound him. And yet when it came time for him to die, he answered never a word. How did they know that hundreds of years beforehand? You say, well, Greg, I read novels. I mean, look, we've got some that have written books that are thousands of pages long, and they carry this storyline from the beginning to the end. And so, yeah, the Bible could do it, but that's not how the Bible worked. I want you to understand in the history of the Bible, and I can't go in, this isn't about this, but we have it in one tidy book nowadays. That's not how it was accumulated, and that's not how we received it. Do you realize that archaeologists have found scrolls of different eras of time and of different books that have gone together to put these things? It wasn't like it was just this, boom, here it is, when it comes especially and particularly to the Old Covenant and these prophecies. And you can go, and archaeology is to this day still unraveling and finding and, and unearthing areas, and these scrolls that were written hundreds of years before Jesus would walk the face of the earth, prophesy of things that happened to the T. Someone says, well, it's just carefully crafted. I mean, so somebody read all those books and they just made sure they made a man to to go through all that. How do you do that? One, how are you going to get the guy that's going to volunteer for that job? And number two, how do you really pull it off? Because the intelligent Jews among them would have put would have snipped that right in the bud. They didn't want him to be. That's clear not only from the Bible. That's clear from secular history. You see, it just it it goes too cleanly. God expresses His power to us in the universe, and when we look out and see the things that are created. But He also expresses His power to us in the revealed, written word. That all through the pages of this. This Ethiopian nobleman, as he's reading this, Philip begins there. Now, I don't know if this is what Philip went on to preach. I will personally believe it is. And he's beginning to explain this. Remember, this nobleman has just returning from Jerusalem. That's the place where all of this took place. No doubt it still rumbles from all of that. No doubt they still talk about this. No doubt this whole issue of Christianity, the way, is in opposition to what he had been told and he's he's aware of all these things. And now Philip is able to say, you see what I'm talking about? You see how this ties together? I'm convinced he went on. It says, yet he it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was the Lord's will that this would happen. He would be bruised. And I hope as you picture, as you understand the view of the cross, his visage was marred more than any man. That means he's unrecognizable. He had bruises already. Now, usually it takes, at least me, it takes a day or two before the bruise gets going, before you can see it. On the day of his death, his bruises, that's how bad they've beaten him. Now, the only people I've seen that have been beaten so bad, you see their bruises that day, are fighters that get in a ring and literally pummel each other. And by the time their press conference come, you're seeing the bruises already. But that's because they're just wailing. Or having been welled on. I don't suppose I will ever forget some of the images that I saw of the riots that took place down in L.A. Some of those people that were just brutally beaten. Immediately, the bruises start to show. This is what he looked like. And yet it was the Lord's will this would happen. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why did this have to be the way the righteous will of God would be accomplished? I cannot answer that. But I can tell you this much. Is there any doubt in your mind that God loved Jesus Christ? His only begotten Son? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die for our sin. And I am convinced that if God could see Jesus go through this and see His will accomplished... There is more to all that we go through in life than I understand when it comes to tragedy, when it comes to loss, when it comes to the things that make the human mind say, if God really loved me, he wouldn't, and you fill in the blank. If God really loved me, he would have, and you fill in your blank. We all have our blank. There is not a doubt in my mind that God loved Jesus. And there is nothing that any person on earth has ever gone through that's worse than what Jesus went through. Now, I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm not saying it's not horrific, whatever some people have gone through, but it's not any worse. He loved him. Now, I sit in the point, I was going out, but I got to say it because it's on my mind. Sometimes people say, then why? Then why? And again, I don't know why, and I'm going to give you Greg Branch's half a penny's worth. I am not convinced when I read the scriptures, and I'm not saying it's not didn't happen, but I'm not convinced that there was ever another angel created after God created Adam and Eve. He may have. But scriptures don't indicate that as the way I read them. What we do know from scriptures is that there was a great destruction and there was a great division that happened in heaven with Lucifer, with the angels that sinned, and the angels that were cast out. It appears to me that God decided when he created mankind that any more created beings... Would be created with a choice. And if they chose him. Through life on earth. Then they would choose him. Through anything that might happen. In that eternal realm. If they deny him. Through a life on earth. Then they would have denied him. In an eternal realm. And that will not happen again. Now, I can't tell you if that's for sure the case, but it helps me process and make sense out of some things. Because if I can't deal with being separated or in opposition to my family here on earth, even though I know God's word says one or the other, then I wouldn't do it in an eternal realm when something came up with people that I was close to or with beings that I was close to. And if I couldn't take something that I might not otherwise be able to understand and in my comprehension agree with, but still acquiesce to the word of God in this life, then I wouldn't do it in the eternal one either. Frankie coaches football, and I know, I am convinced in my mind, that he puts his kids through some things that he knows is going to break them down just to see if they'll keep fighting. And just to see if they'll come out on the right side. And yes, it'll make them stronger. But you've just got to see where the will is. God needs to see where our will is. And you know what? We need to see where our will is. Today, I don't know if that answers every question, but here's what I know it does say. I know that the, when Jesus suffered in a way that's uncomprehensible to me, God's will was accomplished and it prospered in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Through this process, he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession... For the transgressors. This whole process brought about a deliverance. Now I don't know how long he preached. But for time's sake I'm going to start skipping around on some things my mind's eye is pretty convinced he must have gotten through. You know in the very next chapter Isaiah 54 and 13. He says all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear. Fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Isn't that what we need to know? That there is a time coming when this won't come near me anymore. When all these things can be put away. When a time when the children of Israel did not know peace, He could prophesy through this Messiah, through this Lord, that peace would come that people can't take away. Isn't that what we really need to be assured of, no matter where, how we grow up in life? In America, in the United States, and we prayed and we were so grateful to be a part of it. You know, when we read scriptures about how the wealthy, and we tend, I don't know if I tend, and maybe you do too, to think, oh, well, the wealthy, that's like those people that live over on the hill. that have a huge house, and they're really wealthy. You know, I heard something just last week. If you have change in your pocket, or change in the ashtray of your car, or in a jar at home, If you have loose change, you are in the top 14% of the world's wealth. Means there's 86% of the people that live on this earth are less, that have less than you do. And if you have a refrigerator with your food in it, you're in the top 5%. Now that's hard for me to imagine. I thought there's rich people all over the world. And you know what? There are. But it's mostly poverty. Frankie can probably attest to that in the places he's been. Refrigerators a big deal. For people, for most of the world, when they reach something like this and there's a time they don't have to be worried about the next meal or oppression. What deliverance that's promising. Maybe he got down into verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. A time when you don't even have to worry about the enemy anymore. No weapon. And we know today through Jesus Christ there is nothing anybody can do to us to take away our hope, neither life nor death nor principality nor power. Nothing. The worst thing they can do is kill us and set us free. This is the promise through this Messiah. Perhaps he got into verse, chapter 55 and 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Perhaps at this point the Ethiopian nobleman is saying, I get it. Yes, it does all fit together. And then Philip's able to say, well, then seek him now. He's near you right now. Maybe today you're at this point in this lesson. You're saying, okay, I can kind of get this. I see and I, I believe that. He is near to you right now. Seek him while you can find him. If, you're, if you have wickedness, don't say, I'm just too bad. I can never make it. Let the wicked just forsake his way. Turn around. Leave it behind you. The scripture's full of examples in the New Testament that say, and such were some of you. But you've been washed and you've been cleansed. It doesn't matter. Just put it behind you and seek the Lord. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Now we have a tendency, and I'm going to talk to church now, church people, we come all the time. Maybe you're here Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Wednesday night too. And you don't really do all those wicked things, but you know that there's a battle of your mind. And I want you to know temptation in and of itself is not sin. Giving into it. Dwelling on it. Now that's where the problem comes. He says let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Someone might say, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's just it's just it's just what I think about or it's just I would never really do it. But I might fantasize. Don't you forsake it. Number one, and most importantly, because the word of God says it. Number two, and by experience, now, if you've been around it a lot, whether it's yourself or someone you've helped work through it, when you continue to think about it, eventually you'll act on it. And it builds a foundation that is very, very, very difficult to tear out. It haunts you. There is a reason that the scriptures over and over talk about the problem of lasciviousness and the problem of things we see with our eyes. This happened, this I'm talking about pornography. Talking about things even when you don't use printed or visual material anymore because you don't need it now. He says, forsake those unrighteous thoughts. How do you do that? When you catch yourself, you pray to God to forgive you for that sin and, and the unrighteousness of your thoughts. And pray to him to help you think about something righteous. And you might think that sounds easy, but if you've been through it, you know it's still not. But you maintain that and you begin. You try to read the word something. If you don't know of one passage in particular, just read anything. Fight through that. You can overcome. The unrighteous need to forsake that thought. And let them return to the Lord and He will have mercy on you. He wants to be merciful to you and to our God. For He will abundantly pardon. He will forgive it. And not only forgive it, He's going to do it abundantly. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now I got to admit to you today, verses eight and nine, at least it wasn't the communion. <laughs> That's another story for another time. I memorized Hebrews 55 verses eight and 9. Probably by the time I was 18. And you know what I memorized it on? I memorized it on a sermon about the worship. And that we need to do things the way God says because if we do it our own way, our thoughts are not His thoughts and His ways are not our ways. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, His thoughts are than our thoughts and His ways than our ways. We'll just mess it up. And you know what? I believe that's true. But it was a long time before I realized those verses were tied into the mercy and forgiveness and grace of God. Because Greg Branch, and maybe you too, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves when we really mess up. We can just beat ourselves up for the rest of our life. And if we can do that to ourselves, we can do that to each other too. Someone that really hurts us, we, can just, we just can't get over it. At least we think. When we finally realize we won't get over it. And then maybe we got a chance to get over it. But God's not like that. God's ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts and our thoughts. And he says, if if you'll forsake that wicked way, if you'll forsake those wicked thoughts, if you will return to me, I will have mercy on you and I will abundantly pardon you because I'm not like you. I can do it if you'll do it. That's his promise. I like to think that the Ethiopian nobleman got to hear that. And finally, Isaiah 59, 20, Redeemer, come to Zion and to those who from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forever. I don't know how long the world's going to stand. And I would like to think that the Ethiopian nobleman got to hear this, and in my mind's eye, I'm convinced he did. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But he says from the, this is going to be, this message and this will go on, this story, this preaching Jesus will never stop, says the Lord, for now and forever. I am not the first one to preach this sermon and I don't believe I'll be the last unless time ends immediately. Because this message is going on and on. Don't know how far he went. But for time's sake, i got to get back to what he did do. In, back, in Acts chapter 8, it says verse 36, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? You notice one thing we did not discuss in Isaiah? is baptism... Now, I already told you that this was a long trip. We're not told how long the Ethiopian nobleman and Philip were riding along in this chariot. Is it possible that they'd even camped out a few nights already? I don't know. But if they made it through the book of Isaiah and then into the new covenant to the point that he could teach baptism to him. We never even got to that in Isaiah. But Philip had by the time they come to a certain water. The eunuch says, well, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? What hinders me? What's stopping me? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. By the time he got done and by the time they got to that pool of water, the Ethiopian nobleman knew who was being spoken about in Isaiah 53. And he knew now that Jesus Christ not only was the one prophesied, he was indeed the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now that word baptized, I feel compelled to say this about it. It's literally just a transliteration that comes from the Greek word baptizo. The translators have not always agreed on how to translate that word. Because if you know much about religion, you know everybody's got a different way to quote unquote baptize. Literally baptizo means to immerse, to dip, or to plunge. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, you'll read that and you'll find out it's described as a burial. What happened here when he baptized him, he stopped the chariot. Philip and the eunuch got out of the chariot. They both went down into the water, both of them. And he either immersed him, he dipped him, he plunged him, he buried him in that water. Now i got to admit... Say one more thing, I'm getting off on tangents this morning. Some people say, Greg, but you're making a work necessary for salvation. And I know what the Bible says that works aren't that. I want to tell you this morning. I want you to tell me, in your picture of what I just told you, what was the work of the this Ethiopian nobleman? He went down in the water with Philip. And what work did the Ethiopian nobleman accomplish? I believe Philip was the one that had the job to do. The Ethiopian nobleman, what did he have to do? He had to surrender. He had to do what is otherwise against our nature and allow somebody to dunk him. Now, when we were kids, the victor was the one that got to dunk everybody else. You fought not to get dunked. When you come in obedience to the gospel, the least work you will do in your Christian life and in your life up to belief is be baptized. You surrender in baptism. And whoever you want to assist you in that process, they do the work. It takes work to believe because that means you're going to have to invest some of your time and your energy and your mental capacity to see if you'll believe. When you confess and you get the courage to say that you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, now that's putting an effort on you. You might call that work. When you're asked to repent, Luke 13 and 3, Jesus said, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. That takes some work. Not works of righteousness. It's works of faith. What's the difference in a work of righteousness and a work of faith? It's not like in works of righteousness. When I say that, I mean... We think, well, if I do this, then I'll earn it, and he'll owe it to me. No. There's nothing I can do that I can earn this. Nothing you can do. But works of faith means I'm going to do that because I believe that's the right thing to do. Do I mess up? Yeah. When you mess up, what do you do? You confess that fault. Pray one for another. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, much... 1 John 1, 8, 9 says that if we'll confess our faults, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You don't have to just keep being baptized. Living the life, that it's going to take some faithful work. Baptism, it takes surrender. Tell me if there's not an image that more accurately reflects what God wants out of us when we commit ourselves to Jesus. He says, I want you to surrender your life. I want you to be willing to do what otherwise is against your nature to allow. In my mind, this picture of baptism that takes place is the perfect picture of what it means for you to be born again and surrender your life to God. Last thing I want you to notice, Philip and the eunuch went down. Do you realize today there are some people that because the preacher doesn't want to get his slacks wet or doesn't want to have to change clothes, they send people in by themselves and they reach over? No. I'm not saying there aren't some situations that a trash can's the only option. <laughs> I've heard of some pretty creative things. But our pattern, they both went down in the water and he baptized him there. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. I've made a lot of trips in our car between Oklahoma over the last 30 years, at least twice a year, sometimes more. And I can never think of a time I would have enjoyed getting soaking wet in the middle of that trip and then jumping back in the suburban to make the rest of the drive. It's not something you do unless it's important. But that's exactly what happened here and that Ethiopian nobleman, he rejoiced the rest of his way home. I don't know how long it took him to drive dry out, but he was a happy man. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10:30 a.m. and 5 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7:30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.